Reloads, by the way, are a sure fire way to tell who practices and who doesn't, especially for moving. People will instinctively lock up uh, when they're walking and they have to do a reload, or they'll look at their gun a lot when they have to do a reload. Um, that's that's a surefire way to tell kind of where somebody's at in their skill set. You're listening to today's guest. And before I tell you his name, I want to give you a little bit of background on why this episode is so special to me. If you're new to the show, then welcome. This is Everyday Marksman Radio, and I'm your host, Matt Robertson. On this podcast, we talk about tactical skills for an adventurous life. And oh, today's episode is about that adventurous life. For the 10th episode of Everyday Marksman Radio, I wanted to do something a little bit different, and we're calling this part of the Community Highlight Series. And what I mean by that is that we're going to start bringing on guests who are members of our own community, people who post in the forums, people who write comments or exchange emails with me. So it's not just about all the cool experts I get to talk to, but about the stories of the people around us. Because those stories are often really, really cool. Today's show notes can be found at everydaymarksman.co forward slash 10. That's the number 10. Now our guest is Mark Cutright. If you don't know Mark, he was one of the first people to subscribe to Everyday Marksman last year, and I've exchanged a lot of emails with him back and forth, and he was one of my big consultants for my article on field knives earlier this year. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about how Mark found the Everyday Marksman and why he stuck around. We're also going to get into his observations about the shooting community and things he's learned over time. We're also going to dig into his extensive training background because he's covered a lot of things from pistol shooting to rifle shooting to medical training and survival training. And then we'll also talk about his current goals and what he's trying to learn, as well as his experience while making knives. So it's a really great interview. I hope you stick around for the entire thing. Come by the website, everydaymarksman.co, and let Mark know what you think after the end of this thing. All right, that's it for me. Let's get to it. All right, my guest today is someone you might not have heard of before because he is one of our own subscribers. Today is Mark Cutright, who you may see as Cutright in the forums and in the comments all over the page. Uh, he is a longtime tactical enthusiast for training and also makes his own knives uh, on a custom basis. And he just always has lots of really interesting tidbits from all the classes he's done. So today we're doing a very new, brand new segment where we're bringing in our own community members to talk on the podcast. Mark, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. Uh, I know we've talked back and forth quite a bit. You know, it's funny uh, how how this connection kind of worked out. So kind of, you may not know this story, but back in August when I kind of relaunched the Everyday Marksman and I opened up email subscription, you were one of the first people to subscribe on the new site. And I sent an email to you uh, because partially I didn't have everything running yet, but uh, what you probably also didn't know is I was I was so focused on how do I do this whole new blog thing, and I was running a 30-day checklist of how to get your blog better in 30 days, and day two was was reach out to a subscriber and ask and just say hello and ask how they're doing, and, and you were the one I happened to pick, and I think we've, we've kind of traded a lot of emails back and forth, so so uh, thanks to that program that, that I, I did that experiment with. Well, you know, I... I've I've mentioned this before to you, but uh, 
I have been following your blog, I, I want to say at least four years. I'm not entirely sure what it's actually been, but four, maybe five years. And uh, it's, I mean, it's great. It, it's just great for the, for the person like myself who is looking to squeeze an extra, you know, two, three, four percent um, of information um, and, and try to gain that, that little extra bit of knowledge to add to their toolbox. And then sometimes maybe you just got some time to burn and you, you know, if you're interested in the, in the tidbits and the, um, the detailed oriented nature of some of your posts, um, I mean, they're just fascinating. So it's, uh, I consider it a resource. I've recommended it to a lot of folks and, uh, it's, it's just a great blog when you, when you decided to come out with the podcast, you know, that was great. Now, now I've got, you know, an hour, hour and a half of, of material to listen to, to make the day go by faster. And, uh, you know, to be able to contribute to that, to be, to be part of that is just, it's fantastic. Oh, thank you very much. I am, I'm turning red over here. You probably can't see that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask then, uh, cause you actually have been reading for, for quite a bit longer than kind of the most recent iteration of it. Do you remember how you first came across it? I, I really don't. I would imagine that it was probably uh, a Google search and I was probably several pages in um, and looking for various things. I, I probably had a very specific question about a specific piece of gear um, to see whether it was worth my time or not. And, um, you know, once you stumble across a, a site like yours, like, hey, you start clicking around. Hey, this is a great resource. I like the way things are written. I like the, the detailed, um, well-researched, well-referenced, um, scholastic nature, if you will, of, of things. And, um, and also there, there's, there's zero bravado. I don't have to put on a filter to read what I'm getting around here. It's just quality information. So, um, yeah, I, I, I stuck around, I stuck around. So I, I really couldn't tell you how exactly I came to it, but I would imagine that, um, you know, it probably had something to do with chest rigs or a belt rig or, or something. Um, some, some piece of gear. Isn't that what always, yeah, probably. always searching for that, that seems to be the case. That seems yeah. to be the case indeed. So something you mentioned there, I kind of want to, uh, let's, let's talk more about that. You mentioned kind of a bravado that you come across in a lot of other places. Um, and now this is, does not need to be about kind of what I'm doing right or wrong, but kind of what is that bravado you sense a lot in our community? is a shooting community. Well, first off, I think it's natural. I'm not going to say that it's good. I'm going to say, I think it's natural. Um, a lot of folks who are oriented into the shooting community have a, uh, healthy respect for, for the, the weapons and, and things that they're dealing with. Uh, and with that comes a bit of, uh, self-empowerment, for some guys, and usually it is guys, not always, once again, just my experience here, there's a lot of ego wrapped up into all of that. Um, bigger guns, bigger calibers, uh, I need to spray more bullets faster, I need the, the best piece of gear, I need the best gun, I need the latest iteration of whatever. Um, once again, I think it's, a, it's all a natural thing, I just I, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. 
um, there is such a thing as good enough. And so if you, if you take that naturally occurring orientation of a lot of folks, for some people, certainly I got wrapped up into it, it can become a compulsion. And so you start chasing your tail and regrettably it's, it's, you will bankrupt yourself doing this. Uh, there's a lot of fantastic optics that cost more than the, the host rifle. And so if you just wanted to limit it on optics, you could easily spend $15,000 outfitting your small personal arsenal, if, if that's the case, with the best of the best of the best. And, uh, or you might be able to find something, you know, between two to $600 that really works very, really well, or between six and $1,200. Um, and so there's something that I learned along that, that personal journey of mine. And that is, is that identify what you're trying to do and then fill that. Um, when I was training, starting to outfit my, my guns, one of the things that, that got thrown around, uh, thrown around a lot was define your mission and, and then outfit yourself for that. Now, of course, as a civilian, I didn't have a mission, but, uh, a lot of your blog posts echo that, um, Hey, I want an everyday do-all rifle. Turns out a low power variable optic and uh, a white light hits 90% of whatever you would need from zero to 500 yards and the ability to identify a target at night. So, hey, that's, that's a win. And in this particular case, you, you, don't need to spend a, an entire fortune. You could have 500 in an optic mount and light and another 500 into a rifle uh, if you're budget oriented and, and have a winning combo that's, that's reliable. There's a trap to be had there. Um, if you just wanted to chase the, the, the light, I mean, now you've got light bodies and, and light heads and pressure pads. And what do I, what do I need? Well, Turns out I'm not a MARSOC Navy SEAL Special Forces dude. That's not who I am. Um, I'm an average, everyday guy, and uh, about a $100 streamlight works for me. I'm not swimming across the Mississippi with my uh, rifle in hand. So be realistic about what it is you're trying to accomplish and then, and then fill that. And the hardest part about that is probably being happy with your decision. And that's where training comes in because that will put your gear through its paces and prove to yourself what you've purchased for the purpose that you've intended works or doesn't for that matter. So Mark, one of the things I kind of want to ask you about is this training progression. You talked about all the experience that you've got and it's, it's funny you talked about the equipment side of it because just a couple episodes ago, I was talking to Russ Miller episode eight and he talks about the equipment arms race. And one of the points I thought was really salient that he made was your, your equipment only has to be good enough that it's reliable. And after that, it's got to be more on you. So stop chasing, like you said, all the latest and greatest, most expensive stuff, because you're not, you're not getting that much more for it. Yeah, I, I would agree a hundred percent with that sentiment. Um, probably the best example for me is, is directly related to what he was saying. Um, I've taken exactly one precision rifle course, where essentially we learned about the fundamentals of <clears throat> milliradians and MOA and what kind of rifle you might use and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, um, I had spoke with uh, 
the instructor and asked, you know, what would you recommend for a guy who wants to take this seriously? His recommendation was get a 308 because it's inferior. And I scratched my head about that for a little bit and asked for an explanation. And his explanation was, you know, this thing is not going to buck the wind all that great, like a 6.5 Creedmoor or a 224 Valkyrie. And you're going to earn your knowledge. And yeah, that sounds great. Sign me up. Let's do things the hard way. Let's get down and dirty. Let's get active and comfortable with our gear and learn it. Um, and, and I'm glad that I did because the ammo is accessible. It's affordable. The money that I have saved by going with a 308, I don't have to worry about burning out barrels and you can get an absolutely great 308 rifle for $600. So once again, being a little more budget conscious, um, the, the savings that I've got now I can put towards ammo and, and, and trigger time basically. And, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that same, that same episode, that was the, uh, the fella from, uh, with a nom era model 70 Winchester model 70, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, he talked about the guy. Yeah. Up to a, yeah. And I would rather place fourth every time consistently, especially against guys who are running top of the line gear um and and beat out you know 25 other guys um then then take first um if it means i've got to invest ten thousand dollars into a, a shooting rig as opposed to say 1400 and 1400 is not an arbitrary number that's exactly what i have in my rifle mount scope bipod sling uh reloading dies in the first 200 rounds of ammo so um it's an endeavor that uh, I could afford. Maybe not everyone is on that uh, price point, but uh, certainly there's some who are well above that price point. And hey, good for them. Uh, but for me, it's it's not about the the gear. I'm not I'm not investing ego in my gear. I'm not loading my rifle with ego. Uh, I am instead looking to to gain those skills um, for self reliance and and also just enjoyment. Um, there's a, there's a real fantastic sense of accomplishment that, uh, it's, it's when you've worked for it and you've attained it, uh, it's not easily stripped from you. You know, you've earned it and, um, you know, putting three holes touching at a hundred yards feels pretty great. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, put, the, put the time in, earn it. And, and, and go that route would be my recommendation. So speaking of putting time in and earning it, I'm, I, I brought up our forum and I have a post from a couple months ago where I asked about a training progression and you gave one of the longest, the longest list of, of what looks like all the things that you've done. Uh, and I'm not going to read down the list, but can you kind of summarize, like, what does that training history look like for you and kind of how did that evolution happen? So, um, I'm a big advocate of personal responsibility. Um, and I knew that I wanted to get my concealed carry license. And I also knew that I was, I knew how to shoot a gun. Uh, I was also fortunate enough to know that I didn't know anything about fighting with a gun. And so, um, that's, that's quite the distinction. 
Uh, and I'm not knocking Taekwondo, but I, I saw a lot of guys who practiced Taekwondo that couldn't fight. They were black belts. They were great at katas and forms and um, fantastic, but they, they couldn't fight. And so when, when we would spar, um, it was a 50-50 shot. Um, the, the training was there to, I, I pursued the training because I wanted to learn how to fight with a gun. There's a mindset that I didn't have that I knew I didn't have. Um, and, and I wanted to acquire the skills and the mindset. So I kind of break that down into, um, two things. There's hardware and software. The hardware is the stuff that you buy, the guns, the kit, you know, the magazines, the holsters, all the ancillary items involved with all that. The software quickly becomes, um, the determining factor in, in success. So that training pipeline for me, um, once again, just a civilian, uh, I decided to train at, uh, a place down in Farmington, Missouri called asymmetric solutions. They're a fantastic outfit. Their training cadre down there is all special forces to include some SWAT guys. Some, uh, I believe they're HRT teams, the hurt teams, which is essentially a specialized SWAT team as I understand it. But folks from MARSOC, SEALs, Marine Raiders, um, JSOC, um, folks with some really interesting backgrounds. A couple notes about that. One, they were all highly professional. Two, they were all uh, very knowledgeable and professional. They were not gung-ho egomaniacs. And if you asked them pertinent questions, you got pertinent answers. Uh, so the climate there is was was very good for me. Um, it was excellent. Everybody was approachable. You could get good sound answers and simple questions, just idiot proofing an idea. Hey, what do you think of this holster? Well, I ran one in Afghanistan or in South America or Asia. And if you're not around saltwater, it's great. Things like that. To the, to the point about training, um, you start with a basic class, uh, basics of tactical shooting where you're, you draw from a holster, point, aim, shoot, and reholster about 500 times before you even crack off a shot. And uh, really opened my eyes. Really opened my eyes. Because this was formal homework I now had to do. This was uh, it's essentially point shooting and, and reactive shooting. And it, it, was, it was an introduction. It really was. It's ba basics of tactical shooting. Uh, it was a fantastic class. I'm glad that I took it. From there, we the next evolution, if you will, was uh, tactical pistol one, two, three. Um, I think I wound up taking uh, tactical carbine one uh, in between some of those, and then eventually two and three. And the way that's structured is the first half of a course is... Uh, is typically the technical issues, practicing, getting the repetitions down, and then you go live. For these more basic classes, you have an application course where the entire day is live. So it's two days. And this was great. There's a lot of solid practice. Um, one of the good things about a class, by the way, is you learn a little bit about yourself. You're introduced to other shooters. So there's a bit of, um, there's a bit of, uh, uh, culture that you're or introduced to rather and um, you can see your successes and failures in relation to others and that's an important learning 
tool for me because I might be doing something flawlessly and something else absolutely horribly. And I have an entire class, typically uh, eight to 12 other, uh, excuse me, eight to 12 people total that I get to learn from in addition to the instructor. So on the level one classes, uh, there's not much movement. Level two, you're beginning to learn the fundamentals of, of moving and, and shooting. For example, walking heel to toe across the room and learning to do a mag reload. And reloads, by the way, are a sure fire way to tell who practices and who doesn't, especially for moving. People will instinctively lock up uh, when they're walking and they have to do a reload or they'll look at their gun a lot when they have to do a reload. Um, that's, that's a sure, sure fire way to tell kind of where somebody's at in their skill set. Um, right. It's, it's like in weightlifting talk about greasing, greasing the groove where it's, it's you, you have, you, if you do so many repetitions of it, you don't even think about it. It's just the movement and exactly where everything has to go and how it has to happen is just done so that, that's the only way to get to where you can do all those things at the same time. And that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And and we put a lot of focus on, uh, or rather, a lot of focus was put on, you do not look at your system that you're operating. You don't look at the weapon that you're operating. You keep your eyes on the threat because situational awareness, what they call SA, is, is that vital. Um, at the time, there was a cop had been shot. This was... 2015, I think, uh, by an armed assailant who was running a M1 carbine. I think it was in a parking lot, and uh, a cop had had gotten real close to to cover a four foot wall. Uh, excuse me, a four foot pylon. He had gotten real close to cover, and this guy was a uh, a veteran who um, he was having some serious problems and decided to start shooting people. And so this guy flanked this cop, and and, and the cop perished regrettably. Um, but it's, it's a real-world example of someone losing situational awareness, getting too close to cover. And uh, you can see you know that play out. And um, it's, it's drastic. That's the kind of stuff that puts a lump in your throat that, that makes you realize shooting guns is fun, but this is why we're here. And, and, and don't be that guy. Don't, don't perish. Uh, learn these skills because they're that important if the worst of the worst was to occur. So um, so something I saw in the progression you listed, two, two kind of courses that really stood out to me because you have the, the assortment of your pistols and your carbines, the precision rifle, but there's two in there. Well, three really, but uh, two of them are combat lifesavers. So medical training, I assume. Yes, correct? that is correct. So <laughs> the, uh, the instructor of that course, uh, he's a medical doctor. He was, um, you have to forgive me, I don't know the, the exact terminology, but he he basically traveled with Navy SEALs and was equipped to do open up to open heart surgery on them in the field. So this is a guy who could shoot and dive and you know parachute and everything else with these guys. He just wasn't a Navy SEAL, but he was Navy SEAL qualified and uh, super cool guy. Learned a whole lot. If moral of the story with combat lifesaver was, if you're going to learn how to to make holes, you need to know how to plug holes. And uh, yeah, okay, sign me up. That sounds great. Um, there there was no argument. Um, uh, a course like that will 
alleviate some of your prejudice and presumptions, or excuse me, some of your assumptions about what you think you know and, and what needs to be done. Um, one of the big takeaways from that course was imagine a two liter of soda dumped in your kitchen floor. That's, that's a lot of fluid. And that's how much fluid you can lose before you need to actually start to be concerned. You're fine with losing two liters of blood. Um, I'm sure you don't want to be there because you're losing two liters of blood. But um, once you see that and how big of a pool that is, now you've, you've been introduced to that once. So a lot of this is an introduction to inoculation, if you will. Um and, and the other thing of it was is, hey, you don't have to be a doctor like me. You've got to, um, you've got to control human plumbing. So tourniquets and uh, uh, learning how to apply a, a needle for hypotension, uh, pneumothorax. Um, yeah. Once again, I'm not a doctor. Um, in my mind, I thought this was going to be like, plunging a, a giant needle in, an, in someone's heart like in Pulp Fiction, the movie. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's not. It's a few ounces of pressure with your finger. Um, and, and hey, now you can you know help somebody with a sucking chest wound. That's pretty cool. A candy bar wrapper and, or, or some duct tape and, and a you know, three-and-a-half-inch needle, and all of a sudden you, you can save a guy's life. That's, that's real power. I mean, that is real power. So... Yeah, um, the first one was good. The second one, now you're learning how to administer um, first aid to yourself and how much pressure you really need to put on a tourniquet by by faking arterial bleeding through a pressurized, essentially a pressurized camelback. Uh, and you're doing it in a under the guise of a... Um, A mass shooter event um, and so a lot of this once again is to introduce you to stressful situations that uh, you you won't encounter on the day-to-day -day. because the fact of the matter is is that America is a pretty peaceful safe place but bad things happen all the time and and often they happen to to good people so um, and you don't get to choose when it happens. That is correct. You you do not. And and so if you can try to bring some order to the chaos that's been introduced to that situation, um, all the better. All the better. It's nice to have that that skill set and not have to use it. Um, then then to be uh, as ineffective as a as a bunny rabbit against a uh, a pack of wolves. Uh, Speaking of of a uh, chaos, so. Because uh, I know how this one can go. The other class I, I noticed you listed on there was Force on Force. Yeah, so Force on Force was an emotional class for me. Once again, I'm I'm in just an average guy, and uh, I died a lot. Um, simple things, um, and my personal naivety um, was was revealed to me. Uh, one of the biggest things that I learned about myself uh, was if I'm with a significant other or a loved one, in other words, if I have somebody to pull security duty over, that's where my focus goes. Um, and, and if a weapon is presented 
while I'm with said person, uh, it's on no matter what. I I instinctively place myself between the threat and said person and produce my weapon uh, and and fight to neutralize that threat. Uh, if I'm by myself, I am way, way more likely, unless I have a great tactical advantage, to just hand over my wallet. Um, and so I'm not going to say, I'm not going to tell anybody to bet with their life. I'm not going to do that. However, everything is circumstantial. And um, if if the situation reads right... It's a lot cheaper for me to hand somebody my wallet, make a phone call, and cancel some credit cards later. Maybe, maybe lose a hundred or two dollars cash um, than it is to 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 get in a gunfight, produce a weapon, potentially get stabbed. Now, you could potentially get stabbed either way. So, you know, once again, fielder's choice. I'm not advocating one way or another, um, but but that's what I learned about myself. I also saw people who they. They wouldn't fight. Um, and then I saw people who, at the drop of a pin, they, they, would, they would utterly destroy somebody. Um, it's, it's, it's not good when a student pistol whips an instructor with a, a simunition <laughs> round, uh, or a simunition pistol, rather. Um, and so, so, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that fluctuates um, wild, widely. It's very much a very personal thing. And so that, that class was a lot of personal exploration for myself. Absolutely. So I feel like I, there's so few opportunities for most people to go do some kind of force on force situation. And it's just, I think, like you said, that's such a huge learning opportunity, but so few will do it because they never get past the, what they're already good at, right? Like people go to these classes a lot of the time and they do the same things over and they're all just practicing different little minutia of weapons handling. Oh, clearly, clearly malfunction this way, reload that way. But no one really progresses very far into well, what's it actually going to be like to get into a fight and someone shooting back at me potentially. How does that feel? How's that different? Um, and I, I'm not going to lie. I have not done force and force training. I've, I've done small unit tactics stuff, you know, in a, in a wooded area. And even that it was significantly different than where, how it goes doing a, I'm on the square range with an instructor watching me do reloads and shoot targets. Yeah, the it's the dynamic is is greatly different. Um, the particular instructor that I had in, in one force on force class, and you gotta understand, I took the same courses a multitude of times, uh, or a multitude of times, just due to the fact that the program is membership based, and you're you're going there uh, monthly, sometimes uh, a couple times a month. So <clears throat> you take the course, and you wind up taking it with different instructors, and so you get you get different results. And even though you might take one course with one instructor over here, um, you, you will take the same course with, with the same different instructors is what I'm trying to say. Um, so the results of that were different. There's, there's one gentleman who, uh, well, he was shaped like a refrigerator. He was probably 340 pounds, six foot six, uh, and, and a big guy. And and I'm not a small guy. I'm not terribly tall, but I'm I'm a pretty stout fellow myself. Um, and and this guy could murder you with his with his hands, um, even if you had a baseball bat for real. He that is the guy. The reason that man is the reason you carry a gun. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. There's no jujitsu who's going that's going to save you 
from a guy that that size. No, sorry, that, I didn't want to interrupt you, but it reminds me of a story um, talking about, you mentioned like Taekwondo, and that's not the same thing as a real fight. And it reminds me of a story when I was in college, and this is probably not really well known among among uh, everyday marksman readers and listeners, but for a while I actually was studying like medieval sword fighting, Western martial arts, and the group I was doing this with, uh, two of the guys there were hardcore like MMA. They, they did ju- like jujitsu, they were doing wrestling, and they were like into the real fighting. And I remember one of these guys, very skilled, but I outweighed him by 60 pounds. And there was there was one day we were sparring and he went for a clinch and tried to take me down. And that's when like, he just realized that the weight difference on that was difficult to overcome. Yeah, and and to to prove that, to drive that home, that's why you have weight classes in the UFC. I mean, if you, if you don't think a 60-pound difference is a huge disparaging difference, um, it, it matters. It matters when you get slammed on the ground or pushed around or, or any of that. Um, tactically, you have to have a great advantage to take on a guy like that. Um, weapons help, you know. Um, and, and so, <laughs> when I'm in this class with a guy who's 100 pounds more than me um, and, and several body frame sizes larger, uh, and he pushes you around, um, you're gone. You're gone. It'll crush your head against a wall. Um, and so, yeah, you know that. You avoid. You, you, keep, you keep dozens of feet between you and that threat. Um, a, a fantastic scenario, was very well thought out scenario, was um, two fellas are uh, uh, by a truck with, with the hood up. You know, their, their car's not working, or so it seems. And eh, they're two or three cars down from yours, and you just exited the, the grocery store. You got uh, two hands full, or maybe you're pushing a cart. And uh, hey, man, can we can we borrow your cell phone? Well, sorry, guys, I, I got to be home. Why don't you talk to the manager inside? And so the first tactic is to ensure that they keep their space, as well as you're still being helpful um, and not outwardly aggressive or rude. And so you offer them a solution. Hey, talk to the manager. Maybe you can use the phone for free inside. I can't help you. I have somewhere to be. Um, the one guy starts to come out of sight. And in reality, he's trying to flank you while the fella at the, the car, still underneath the hood here, is really vying for your attention. So take a few steps out. Keep them all in your peripheral vision. Even though you don't have vision on the guy, you know where he's not. He's not behind you, and you know kind of where he went. So um, you use these techniques to to mitigate the threat. And uh, and then, you know, the guy kind of appears entirely too close to you, approximately 15 feet away, and he has no business. That's that's not normal. So now your, your hair is kind of standing up a little bit. This is a natural inclination. Um, we all have personal space, and we all... Uh, unknowingly can perceive predatory behavior. And so at this point in time, you set down a grocery bag in your dominant hand and you begin to index your gun. You're just feeling it. Maybe you're prepping it. If your shirt's tucked in, maybe you're untucking it. Uh, you're not showing your hand or anything like that. And, and so here's, here's a way that you, you know, systematically start to mitigate. Uh, other situations or scenarios that we train were just 
they're they're mean. I mean, they're just mean. You're getting pushed around. You're getting ambushed. You're all kinds of things. Um, the the what I constantly tell my friends when we talk about shooting because I invited all of them to go. Nobody wanted to put in the work or invest the money in training because it's not cheap. It's an investment of time and money for sure. I tell them all the same thing though. The difference between you and I when we're in the gas station is um, I've got a plan. We're both going to be crapping our pants. Nobody plans for that. We're just there to grab our Gatorade, fill up our gas tank, and go on our merry way. Um, we're both going to be crapping our pants. It's it's that I've got a plan. I'm doing something while soiling my my drawers, and uh, and I and I I think that's the truth. I mean, you when you strap a gun on for concealed carry, um, you're not you're not a hero. You're just you're just an average person who wants to increase your likelihood of, of surviving um, a really unfortunate set of circumstances. And uh, it's not your responsibility to be a hero. You know, you don't grow six inches and, and you can't bench press Mercedes Benz just because you, you put a, a compact pistol in your pocket. Um, and, and a little bit of training kind of reveals a whole lot about yourself if you're open and honest with yourself. Uh, the worst students that I saw in class were guys with giant egos. They were there to tell the instructor how they shoot a gun, not to learn how to shoot a gun from the instructor. So, mm-hmm. um, or, um, you know, for those who are introspective, they'll definitely get a whole lot out of it. They'll learn a whole lot about themselves um, as as they're physically stressed. Mm-hmm. Um and and so uh, here here's a here's a challenge idea for people, uh, maybe a marksmanship challenge one day. Go put twenty five pounds or, or a challenging weight in a five a five gallon bucket and uh, go do a box drill. Walk in a circle, or excuse me, walk in walk in a square, shooting at a target one handed while carrying an appreciable amount of weight in the other hand. Um, that's a, that's a great place to start on stressing yourself out. Uh, with a pistol and seeing what it's like trying to move um, something um, while trying to keep rounds rounds on target. I mean, that's a great example. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, when I would live in Montana and I was training with a bunch of guys, um, that was one of the things that came up is that somebody who had done, he'd gone out down to, uh, what's the guy, Bill uh, Rogers, Rogers Shooting School. I'm, I'm not think, familiar myself. Uh, I'm going to have to look that up. But anyway, yeah, so the guy learned, for, he went to that school and he came back and he, and he kind of looked at everybody and we were all practicing, you know, at the time, the latest and greatest was the Magpul pistol DVDs. And we're all doing this like two-handed, like grab the jaw, two-hand push out, you know, hit the target. And it's like, it was all great. But he was like, so what happens in the real world when you your other hand is occupied? And it kind of reminded me of that. Like when you have to be guiding a kid or your loved one, how well can you shoot one-handed or with your offhand one-handed while your, your other hand is occupied. Uh, and that he introduced those kind of scenarios. None of us had ever really thought to like, well, that's, I guess that's real life. Yeah. Yeah. So you, one of the benefits of that even coming up is just to get you thinking about it. Um, because you're absolutely right. That's, that's not even on the table to discuss for most people because it's a challenge and it doesn't make you look good. And it reveals 
huge holes in your efficiency um, of being able to shoot one-handed. Um, there's a there's a several day course available over at AS that's uh, it's essentially diplomatic protection, and so you're you're kind of a bodyguard, and you learn some stuff about that. Uh, I have not taken that; I'd like to, but a few of the techniques were revealed with us because you're you're always carrying a uh, you know sidearm, and uh, basically you manipulate the head. Um, I'm not going to pick on women, uh, but but in this particular scenario, let's say that you're with your wife, your girlfriend, your significant other, um, and they are absolutely hysterical with the chaos that's going around them um, because they're such great people. They're not well adjusted to the utter chaos of, of that scenario. Um, the recommendation that, that I constantly see come up in that scenario was grab them by the head, whether that's a head full of hair or the nape of the neck and, and use pain, um, use pain compliance. Um, because people follow their heads, you know, Hey, we're heading out to the car. We're going through here, go straight. And, uh, you know, now you've got your pistol indexed in a safe direction, whether it's you, you, you've got your gun grabbed and your knuckles are crossed your cheekbone. Um, or, or you've got a low carry, kind of like a modified, uh, Sewell low position, something like that. So now your gun is out and you and your loved one are heading out, um, and you can go, you know, if you've got a kid, you might even consider what's going on with that. You know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to cradle the, the two-year-old in, in my off non-dominant hand and scream at my wife. So I'm the only thing that she hears to, to make that move. Um, and those are all things that most people don't even want to think about. Right. Um, I, I, it's something I couldn't comprehend, uh, initially. And, and that's, I'm sure you've you've heard of the OODA loop. Um, oh, yeah. sure most people <laughs> listening, yeah, you you really have to reorient um, your your comprehension because the first thing you want to do is deny deny that it's happening. That doesn't make sense. This isn't happening to me. You and the person who makes the most sense, the quickest, usually uh, winds up on top. Mm. Or would be practicing more. Mm-hmm. So, out of curiosity, so this kind of goes backwards a little bit. Um, you mentioned something in that force on force scenario with the guy coming around the corner and the hair is on the back of your neck. And you mentioned that everybody has an instinctual recognition of a threat. And it reminded me of a book. Have you ever read left of bang? Uh, I, you know, I had the audio book. I had the audio book, but yeah. So I'm going to leave a link to it in the notes on this one. Cause that's a really, really good book. I actually want to do an article on it uh, at some point, but it kind of talks about that. It's, it's learning to trust your gut and then, and then actively look for the things that there are going to trigger your gut. And that's, that's an example of, you know, someone slipping out of sight and it just, that's not normal behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and I'll tell you something, um, coming from, from St. Louis, um, we've, we've got a lot of criminal activity in St. Louis and it's still a safe city. Um, you're still statistically just fine and dandy. But when we go to other cities, when we visited other cities, um, you you find out that um, if you share that information with people, sometimes you get some looks like, oh, you're made more aware of, um, you know, uh, situational awareness because it's it's a skill that um, applies. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you want to go certain places, you just need to be aware of where it is you're going. 
Um, if you go to see a ball game here and, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people do, there's some crime associated with that because it's easy pickings. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's an example of, you know, don't let the quality of your life be impeded, but don't take unnecessary risks at the same time. Yeah. And don't be, don't be oblivious. That is correct. Be, be aware. That is correct. And so, you know, you, you put all these feathers in your hat and hopefully, you know, a skill set is developed and, um, and really at the end of the day, you hope you don't ever have to use it. And it was just a fun time learning all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far that's how it's worked out. Thankfully. So, Mark, what's a what's a goal you're working on right now? Mm. Current goals include um, increasing my, or excuse me, current goals include decreasing my uh, my time at the plate rack. Uh, I I set a personal best of uh, at ten yards, knocking down six six inch plates in three point seven nine seconds. Uh, my, my previous best was 4.2 seconds. Um, and that's, that's from the holster. So that's one of those things that <clears throat> keeps me sharp, keeps my draw time good. And, uh, I enjoy doing it. Folks that I take out with me, uh, we can have friendly competitions. And so, um, the competing element, by the way, adds to good training. It increases heart rate and, uh, you know, when you're under a shot timer, that increases tension too. So you can start to stimulate some of that stress, but, um, that's, that's one goal, uh, for, for certain. Another goal is to brush up on some outdoor skills. Um, I'm going out in late November for a four day survival trip, um, with a guy who is a straight up bush pirate. He is, uh, he's an interesting character. And uh, we met at a large gathering of survivalists back in spring. And uh, these are guys who, and gals, who, who are just really on their game with um, primitive skills and, uh, and outdoor skills. So, um, Is there any, anyone that's particular trying to, you want to brush up on? Mm, I've always been weak on wild edibles because okay. there's so much Ooh. to learn. Uh, and failures can be, uh, quite unpleasant. Um, you, you know, whether it's an upset stomach or, uh, or death, um, and, and everything in between. So, so, so spoiler alert, I, I, uh, I just had an interview. I'm not sure when I'm going to publish it, but I just had an interview with a, a SEER instructor. So a survival school instructor from the uh, special forces. And I asked him his top three you know, what are the top three things you think people should learn how to do? And number three was knowing your, your wild edibles, knowing your environment and what you can survive on. Yeah. And there's reason, uh, regional knowledge and, uh, you know, more, more local knowledge than that. Um, and it, it's, it's, I mean, you're, it's biodiversity and getting familiar with it. And it's a real discipline. It's a real discipline. Um, It is a massive undertaking that most people just don't have the time for. And uh, so, so yeah, it's it's going to be a rough, cold couple of days. Um, it's going to be a life-affirming few days. And hopefully uh, 
I've, I've learned a couple of things. I'm also going to, um, as a knife maker, I finally, uh, got around to, to making myself a knife and I'm going to put that through its paces for sure. And, uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully it'll be a good time. I feel like I need to have you back on for a whole discussion on knives and knife making. <laughs> We're already coming up on an hour now. Knives are, uh, they're, it's as contentious of a subject as, as guns for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, but yeah, right, absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask the question though, at least just get in there. So when it comes to knives and I know it, so I've already, we've already had kind of an email exchange because I wrote the article on picking a field knife and, and you were my source for a lot of that information. So I kind of already got a, a sense of it, but uh, what is your favorite style of knife? Like if you were trying to pack out, like you're going on this, this kind of backwoods bushcraft trip, what kind of knife do you take? Uh, so the first thing I want to do is keep it functional and realistic. Um, that's so no, not a, no, no compass in the hilt. That, well, you know, Hey, if, if that's what you need, um, okay, but that's not what I need. I will carry a more accurate separate compass elsewhere. And I might even carry two of them. Um, what I really like in a knife that I'm actually using is a three and three quarter inch blade on up to about five to six inches. Six is absolute tops. Um, realistically about four and three quarters is, is what I really like for the blade thickness. I really like five thirty seconds. It's a, it's a great thickness for real hard use and uh, functionality. I like a blade with a maximum width of about an inch and a half. Typically, inch and a quarter is more realistic. And I like a blade grind that is about three-quarter heights, preferably flat ground. Um, the uh, the K-Bar that you love, I think that's a BK-16. Yeah, that's my go-to. Yep, that that meets a lot of those, um, requirements. Um, the, the, the hammer pommel is a blessing and a curse. Um, you know, it's nice to, to grab a baton and drive your knife into stuff. What I don't like is when you need to hit the bottom of your knife, the butt of your knife with your hand. Um, there are times where you need just a little gentle pressure and, uh, and it's painful. So this last one that I've made for myself is, uh, uh, ground at an angle where you've got some pommel and you're going to be hitting uh, the steel as well as the the handle scales, and so you don't want to knock the handle scales off. So there's it's everything's always a compromise. You know the ideal has to take physical shape, and and that's as best of the physical shape as I can get it. Um, and the handle material probably synthetic, something like micarta for me personally. Um, that's that's ideal um for something off the shelf yeah it's it's really hard to beat a bk16 um or that that series the companion i think that's a bk2 yeah uh is a sharpened crowbar as far yeah. as i'm concerned there so i have a, i actually it. have another version of that one called the bk10 which is a, a clip point but it's an eighth it's an eighth of an inch instead of a quarter inch thick and uh it's otherwise pretty similar but i actually really like that one a lot it's kind of my do-all compromise knife you know if it's the same width um you can do quite a bit of prying with it because that's a lot of material there um i'd, I'd have to handle it to see you know some of those 
those characteristics and and what it felt like. The the BK2 kind of cramps my hand. I've got a size large palm with kind of size medium fingers, and uh, the grip on the BK16 is a little thin where my index finger goes on, mm-hmm. and the BK2 the handle is quite uh, cramped. Um, so so there's some ergonomic issues with that series for guys with larger hands. I have found. Um, but once again, um, it's a, it's a good, it's a good compromise. It's a good solution for somebody who wants an off the shelf item. Um, it's certainly not a bad choice. Um, and, and as a knife maker, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit there and criticize somebody's choice regardless of, of who or where it came from. Um, but there are certain designs that are certainly more conducive to, to doing things than others. One thing that I really do like, though, is having a point that's fine enough that I can pick a splinter with. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. That makes sense. It, it, it's achievable with a drop point. It doesn't have to be a, a clip point that's going to snap off when you, when you do any kind of light prying. But um, I, I also think most of YouTube out there, people absolutely abuse their blades. If you're trying to break it, um, I'm not saying it shouldn't be able to hold up to abuse, but um, there's an awful lot of folks out there who do some horrible things to their blade and then say, hey, it shouldn't shouldn't have to do that. Well, let's see you take your $2,000 rifle and, and do <laughs> anything of that nature uh, that you would with that uh, that knife. That should be invincible. Drag it down the driveway. Yeah, sure. Why not? You know. So, all right. Funny story. I've never ever mentioned this to anybody. So, are you are you familiar with the, with the story from Arfcom of throw your rifle down the driveway, make it look battle worn? It's like no. a meme at this point. Okay, so it's like a meme at this point that people still joke about. The guy who originally wrote that was my college roommate. Okay, then he, he was the guy who. Uh, said yeah i'll make this battle worn look and he started throwing it down his driveway to prove the point that you shouldn't baby your tools and then go figure like years later <laughs> i went to his house and he had swapped out all the hardware to make it look nice again and i was just like you're an idiot but- <laughs> i i won't lie i uh i went shooting with uh a few buddies of mine uh two months ago and they brought some very nice toys uh some some bretta 92s and uh, sig sour and and just some some six to twelve hundred dollars. I think there was an HK uh, stuff, and and we were finished shooting that round. My Glock was was uh, locked back. I picked it up and threw it in the puddle. Said if you're not well, if you're not willing to do that with your with your pistols, you know, I'm I'm probably not going to carry it uh, if I'm not willing to throw it in a mud puddle. Um, and I took a bottle of water, rinsed it off, racked the slide, function check, and and back to shooting. We went. Um, was it snarky? Yeah, it was a little snarky, but <laughs> it, it was a true point. And that is, is that, um, we have some strong prejudice about what a tool is and what a sacred item in our arsenal is. And, um, training's a great way to get out there and, and find out what's what. Yeah. Um, I've seen I'm not, a- I'm not afraid of a wear and tear. I just, I, I you know, especially when it comes to pistols, things are going to get dropped down. But I, I like to earn that naturally over time. I get it. I get it. Um, absolutely. Um, I don't ever recommend abusing things, but uh, but knowing that your equipment 
can take some abuse, that is, um, there's some real psychological value to that. Yeah. Knowing that yeah. you can utter rely on it um, and having put it through its paces. Okay, Mark, here's a question that you probably expected. What is something that you wish people in our community would stop doing right now? Boy, that's a great question, Matt. And it's not one that I came prepared for. Um, re restate the question one more time. So what is something that you wish people in our shooting community would stop doing mm. right now? That's such an excellent question. And it's one that I don't know that I have an original answer for. Um, I suppose what I would like to see less of is uh, the extreme political um, environment allowing folks to become so in, embroiled and embattled. Um, a lot of the a lot of the pockets that exist, whether it's a Facebook group or blog post or podcast um, in the, in the political realm, I'm not saying that it's not important I mean, quite the contrary. I think it's vastly, uh, uh, very, very important. And, uh, uh, for a multitude of reasons, uh, everything ranging from national security to, to just practicing an individual's rights and retaining those rights. Um, but there's a lot of vitriol. There's a lot of tension that I don't know that necessarily needs to be there. Um, some of it's downright hateful. And once again, I can understand how people get there. Um, but we have countrymen. We, we, uh, we're civilians. We need to retain our civility uh, to others. Uh, you know, politeness and, and courtesy. Um you could call it downright love if you wanted to. Um, we need to retain that. Um, and I know that's hard to do, when, especially when you feel like, um, you know, 50% of your country is spitting on you because of uh, a hobby that you have or uh, a passion for, for the shooting sports, um, it, you know, is, is one of your main endeavors. And it certainly is for me. Um, there's a lot of people who hold their tongue about said subject. Um with me and it's it's out of respect uh because they know that i take it serious they know that i've taken it seriously enough to invest 400 hours of time into training and several thousand dollars um in in trigger time um but i'm also an apostle for the for the shooting sports i take a lot of people out shooting and i also offer to um you know teach uh what what i know not in a formal capacity but but share what i know take people to the range let them shoot clay birds um let them feel that satisfaction of of making steel ring you know at at 20 yards with a pistol or or hitting the target at 100 yards this tiny little thing and uh and so they can feel you know uh, empowered and more comfortable not not the knee-jerk reaction of fear and so uh 
Yeah, I, I, I think I think what I would ask of people is to to show a little compassion and pull into that reserve or pull out of that reserve of of patience and uh, um, you know not everything has to be embattled. Um, realize that Walmart got out of selling ammo because it's not selling for them, not because they're political saviors. Um, don't let yourself get upset over over those kinds of, of things and and bring the positivity uh, back to to that community. Um, and then by the way is is one of the reasons that I didn't hesitate to come on here because uh, I think that's that's one of the things that your blog and and your podcast contribute to is a, a positive beneficial uh, perspective into the shooting sports and and the skills uh, and ancillary gear around that. Um, and, uh, yeah, contribute, you know, make that peace offering and, and, uh, um, you know, if you can't say anything nice at all, don't say anything. <laughs> well said. Well, Mark, thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I look forward to doing this again sometime to bring out knives and also hear about your experiences doing this bushcraft trip. I think that'd be a really good session to have. I would be more than happy to do it. And, uh, it's been a real pleasure. All right, that does it for our interview today with Mark Cutright, one of our very own community members. I hope you really enjoyed that one. I know I enjoyed talking to him. I think it was a really awesome story to hear a how he found the site, but also more importantly, how he has taken his own training and experiences to the next level. Um, I know he has done more training than most people would get to do in their entire lives, uh, you know, unless they were in some special units in the military. But it's a really awesome thing to hear. I love his little stories about things he learned, such as, you know, the force on force training. And I know there's places to do that. If you live around the St. Louis area, you can definitely look up the same company. I'll leave a link in the show notes. All right, Mark, thank you again for coming on. Uh, someday I hope to pick up one of your knives. I think they're really, really nifty. Um, if you're listening on this one, you want to look them up. They are at cutrightknives.com. And that's going to cut it out from here. Again, once again, you can find today's show notes at everydaymarksman.co forward slash 10, the number 10. Uh, from there, you can find all social media links. Be sure to leave a comment. Let Mark know what you thought of his interview. Join the forum, subscribe, all that good stuff. But in the end, it's about you guys. I love our community and I look forward to talking to you guys more. Have a great week. <laughs>